Hello and welcome to the University of Brighton's Catching Up With podcast series. I'm Richard Newman and after a two-week break, we've been speaking to Professor Dawn Scott, lecturer in ecology, professor of mammal ecology and conservation and deputy head of school for research and enterprise for the School of Pharmacy and Biomolecular Sciences. But you'll probably know Dawn from the BBC's Watch series and her urban mammals research, notably on foxes. We talked about that, climate change and how urban mammals and humans can coexist, but began our discussion by asking where her interests stem from. I'm afraid like most small children, I got an interest in animals uh, from having pets. And so I always wanted to work with animals and I managed to do that as a job. Yeah. Um, and you went on to study the biological sciences at Durham, then embarked on a series of research projects around the world before coming to, to, to Brighton. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I managed to get an opportunity to work in Jordan in the Middle East uh, to study desert animals for my PhD. Uh, And that led um, to uh, other opportunities to work on mammal biodiversity in different places. Um, So I've been to Chile uh, surveying small mammals and cats and also uh, Mongolia, Madagascar (laughs) and uh, lots of places. So, yeah, so I developed a skill in um, surveying mammals and then I used that skill to go and survey in different countries to try and help understand the status of different species and that fed into different conservation organisations, management plans. So that's what sort of I managed to start developing that skill and then applying that skill to help things. And you've been at Brighton for a while now so what, what tempts you into higher education? So I did a postdoc in Zambia uh, and that was training people in um, doing surveys and that was really interesting because I got an opportunity to work with volunteers and do that type of teaching training. Uh, In conservation what's really important is to engage people, try and help them understand more about the ecology and so teaching naturally fitted with conservation because instead of just doing it yourself you have to inspire and train the next series of generations of of ecologists so I teach ecology and conservation to try and help people get into that career uh, and use those new skills to to help um, the future of the planet really to help save some species. Yeah and, and you focused a lot in recent years on urban mammals here in the UK. Yeah, my previous research um, actually worked in South Africa looking at the conflict between carnivores and farmers and that was mainly working on brown hyenas and jackals and leopards and then um, when I had a family I sort of settled a bit more in the UK and my travelling stopped for a little bit Uh, and I started focusing on conflict in the UK and one of the conflict areas that I'm interested in is obviously foxes uh, because they're quite polarised in people's view of foxes, some people love them, some people hate them uh, and I found that really interesting as a carnival that comes into conflict in the UK so that developed my interest in urban animals and also more about how people and wildlife coexist. So I mean yeah I was going to come on to that next really about foxes and humans and um, what human attitudes towards them like you say there is, is a bit of a polarised view why is that? Oh that, that, that's a tricky question to answer. Um, so people's opinions can be formed from all sorts of different um, things including experience but also from culture. Um, so what they are exposed to but also what they're taught can help form an opinion. 
And so people can actually establish opinions quite early age or get opinions from their parents that sort of stay. Uh, and that can mean that people that parents perceive foxes as pests, that's sort of translated onto their children and they're grown up with seeing this animal as a pest. Um, but also that can change if somebody has a bad experience, you know, if their poor bunny uh, in the back garden gets killed and attacked by a fox. Um, that can actually obviously have a negative impact on that person's perception of the animal. So when we're looking at human-wildlife interactions, what we try and do is try and understand those drivers and also try and eliminate or reduce the negative experiences with wildlife and help increase the positive experience to hopefully change attitudes. I guess we all need to be a bit more aware of what's what's around us and where we live because I guess there's like a attitude by many that humans are the dominant species on this planet and I guess no more so when they feel that their lives are being invaded by uh, so something else I mean you can look at anything from that so I think as, as, a, as a human species we need to learn to live with uh, wildlife uh, we rely on wildlife for our food our air our water our health and I think um, a human centric perspective that we can exploit things and not have any consequences has uh, led to very very detrimental situation that we're hopefully trying to sort of pull back and people are becoming more aware of the impact of their behavior on the planet um and you know we need wildlife we need to be part of that wildlife and so we do need to protect it so, so how can things change then changing attitude requires us to understand a bit more about the animals um and um if we can understand um something that causes that nuisance or that problem so for example uh, during the breeding season foxes are very noisy so people complain about the noise and then you actually say well actually it only happens at certain times of the year when they are breeding and the rest of the year they're, they're, they're not as vocal or if people are annoyed by cubs or something in their garden then they're only there for a very short period of time so if people can understand that this is sort of temporary or people are empowered that you can actually do some basic things if you don't want them there um, but also at the same time there's masses of people that get loads of benefit from living with wildlife uh, in some of our studies you know nearly 90% of people have said that you know living with foxes enriches their lives um, so it's the few negative voices that sometimes get the policies in place and those positive voices don't always get listened to but it's really important that though you know we understand that that people do value wildlife a lot and do get a lot from wildlife um, and we need to sort of celebrate that. Yes, I guess people can sort of fear what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is fear of the unknown. I I think a little bit of understanding helps, uh, but you also have sometimes very negative views that's very difficult to shift and that's because it's been um, formed by some sort of maybe some strong negative experiences Um, or strong um, opinions that that person has formed and I think with that is um, you might not be able to change those opinions but you might be able to sort of help them understand that there's other people's points of view as well that need to be considered. Uh, We are seeing a a sort of a raise in awareness of this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and with a kind of more mainstream uh, programming on television for example I mean you've been involved in the BBC's Mm -hmm. watch series and part of the idea of that is to give us give the viewer a window into in, into wildlife and, and that that sort of thing can help can't it 
I mean, I think having it out there um, that people can access this information and actually can share their views is great. Um, doing things with, with the media is, is brilliant, not just to communicate, but also to get the, the people who are watching their response as well. So a lot of the things we've done is we've done calls for uh, public engagement and people have uh, provided us with data that has been used to help understand the species as well. So it's not just about us educating, but the general public educate us by sharing their stories and what they've seen and what they've done. So it's definitely a two-way thing uh, that really helps both sides understand what's going on. When you've done the TV stuff, is it something you enjoy? Uh, yes, I, <laughs> I really like doing the TV stuff. Um, I do other things as well. So I'm on Twitter and we do a series of little snippet videos on understanding about foxes. Um, and I've done all sorts of radio things as well. Um, I'm currently filming for another programme on foxes later on this year. Uh, but it's all about trying to help the public understand a bit more about foxes uh, and other wildlife. So we do stuff on hedgehogs and, and badgers as well. But yeah, no, it's, it, it's really good. It's, it's interesting I didn't get trained in my job to do the media side um but I, I really enjoy it because it's a diversification and also I it helps with the students as well um to understand about communicating science science communication is really important to be a conservationist and so hopefully if we put that into the teaching that also helps them become better communicators yeah it must be quite cool for the uh, students to come here and see you on tv as well <laughs> um if we talk about another main strand of your research and how species respond to habitat change yeah. a lot of that again caused by humans either directly or indirectly so it yeah. could be you know building on it or climate change and that's a, it's a real danger to, to many species around the world. So we're working on several different projects. Uh, one of the projects on habitat change is uh, with things like water voles. And so they have different types of um, risks to their populations. Their populations have gone down quite considerably. Uh, and that's about improving wetland habitats and wetland networks. And we're using the water voles as an indicator species of, of habitat quality, but also looking at the ways we can sort of connect up these networks into more sort of ecosystems that function better. Uh, we've also been doing some work on hedgehogs and obviously you know hedgehogs have in decline because of habitat loss um, so we're trying to find out in urban and rural environments what types of habitats um, hedgehogs need and how we can help improve that so um, lots of different areas on on, on habitat um, sort of trying to improve it make it better and make it more resilient to to future changes yeah um, I mean the state of our planet is a a huge talking point right now so it seems to have been sparked by cultural things so like was, I was talking about before about mainstream sort of TV programs Blue Planet had a big impact on the use of single use plastics for example um, now Netflix has released something similar Our Planet made by the same people again narrated by David Attenborough and the focus of that is to highlight what humans are doing to the planet and the impact that's having on wildlife and the climate stuff like that is doing quite a lot to raise awareness isn't it i think it's essential and it's actually really nice to see that it's becoming more uh, people are becoming more aware it, it feels a little bit late um, and that's because you know I've been interested in conservation for around about 20 years uh, conservation biology was sort of established in the 1980s uh, and it's you know since the 1970s we've, we've been aware of sort of plastics and toxins in the environment and so it, you know it's about 40 years later we're starting to say oh my 
you know, something is happening and we need to do something about it. So um, it's good that it's happening. I just hope that things can, can happen very quickly, that we can make a change. And we can make a change, but it needs to be done very, very quickly. Yeah, and that's a problem as well, isn't it? Because you look at how seriously world leaders are taking the issue, and clearly it's one high, very high-profile example of, of when it's, it's maybe not being taken as seriously. And that's not going to help because you're almost saying that it's, you're bordering on it being too late. So we have uh, sort of got to the point of some environmental tipping points um, and, you know, I don't want to be a pessimist. I want to be an optimist. And I think uh, there's lots of things we can do. There's a really strong movement to make some change. And whether the, the world leaders are actually doing that, the general public are doing that. And so there is a really big push from below to actually change things so I'm hoping that those voices will be heard and I think they will be heard because there's so many of them saying actually we don't we don't want this we want to change things so um, it's really inspirational to see uh, some of the youth movements coming forward uh, about um, you know the 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 climate strikes um, for the schools uh, that there's such a strong youth voice saying listen to us we don't want this we want change and obviously that's got to have an impact on policy eventually do you think there's a lot of there's a lot of passion and there's a lot of talk but do you think there's like enough is actually being done right now or is it moving in the right direction well in the last year we've seen some policies coming in about plastic bags and straws um and i think there will be more and more so i think if there is a voice there will be a shift um i've got an electric car and i would like to see a very very big push in in electric um away from uh, sort of fossil fuels and i think it's doable but it has to have people's drive to want to do that so i think the technology is getting there i think the will is getting there and we need to make it easy for people to make those environmental choices although you say it, it is quite late down the line that it's all happening i guess big corporations can have a big impact on this as well and there are a lot of people who are moving towards finding solutions mm-hmm. and everyone's doing it sort of around the same time but it, that is part of the, the problem that you've mentioned just now i guess it's technology kind of trying to having to sort of keep up to make sure the infrastructure is in place to make all these changes work so I think if there's a will, there is um, the infrastructure. We can put that infrastructure in place, uh, and I think the technology is there and it's advancing very quickly. So, although we have caused quite a lot of problems, we're also very intelligent and we're good at problem solving. So, as a species, uh, I'm hoping that we should be able to make some changes that that will have some long-lasting impacts. Coming back to your work here at the University, Dawn, and um, just touching on your teaching, how would you describe your style? (laughs) Um, I like to try and get students' uh, brains working, Um, quite challenging. Um, I like to put in things like uh, problem-solving exercises, try and get some engagement, try and get some discussion. I think the only way we're going to solve some of these problems is to have people that are good at problem solving. So I do like to try and uh, get the brain cells working and try and make things interactive, uh, quite fun uh, and relevant as well uh, and and applied. So I'm trying to make people that, that are ready for the workplace to try and say, actually, you know, I can solve this problem. I can do this solution where there is there is hope and we, we can make a change. It's quite a difficult one for you to answer, I guess, but I guess they'd be quite inspired by your own research. You must feed off of them as well. 
So I'd like to feel as though I inspire people to do things. I think I've been very lucky with the opportunities I've had. And um, I mean, it's it's really great to hear people's experiences. So the students come in, they've done lots of voluntary work, they've done lots of different things, and they're really passionate um, and they, they want to make a difference. And so that's really nice to, to have that. And it actually keeps you going. It keeps that inspiration. It keeps that motivation. And it also... Um, it's really nice when you hear from students that have gone on to do jobs in ecology and they send you their sort of their ecological reports or they've sent you their sustainable development plans that they've developed in their careers and say oh look what I've done and we're doing this and we're doing that and and that's really nice because the students aren't just here but they're they're sort of they're they're sort of developed part of your family and you keep in touch with them for a long time and, and you can see what they're doing and they're really proud of the careers they go into yeah You've been at the university for quite a while. Was it 2001 that yeah. you joined? So what's kept you here for, for so long? What, what do you think the university does best? So the reason why I've stayed at Brighton is because it is got several different values that are similar values to me. So first of all is inclusivity uh, and diversity. That's really important to me. Uh, and the other thing is it's got some um, strong environmental and, and green targets. Um, so again, the fact that they want to be green, they want to be sustainable is part of um, the ethos of, of teaching ecology and conservation. Um, I also like the university because it is quite inspirational uh, and it's also um, looking forward at what it can do and what it can change and and it wants to be sort of um, a leader in innovation and ideas. Uh, And so that's also, you know, those values of Brighton reflect in um, the values that I feel I have and and that's why I've stayed. Now we end every podcast by just asking four questions uh, away from your work. They're the same every time. So very simple ones. So uh, the first one would be, could you pick a favourite place in Sussex? So one of my favourite places in Sussex is Kingley Vale. Uh, so it's a yew tree forest, so it's very old and it's got lots of sort of pagan <laughs> connotations. Uh, so uh, it's really nice at different times of the year, different seasons, it's different colours. Um, and where, when I visited there last time, I, I saw a stoat um, chasing a rabbit. So I got to see some mammals. So that's why <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, uh, what are you currently uh, watching, reading and or listening to? To. You, you don't have to pick all three. Okay, so I, I'm currently reading *The Optimistic Child* by Martin uh, Seligman, and this is about—it's um, a little bit about mental health, and it's also a little bit about how pessimism uh, can be changed to optimism. Um, and I think it's it's really important uh, about conservation optimism, and I think we are having changes in mental health um, with. Um, especially within youth. And I think it's important for us to stand, understand how we can change um, something that's negative into positive uh, for, for a lot of different people as well as uh, the area in which I work. And if you were stripped of responsibilities for a weekend, how would you, how would you uh, spend it in the, in the perfect way? <laughs> So most of my weekends are spent at a football pitch. Uh, I have two boys and I also am an assistant manager for a football team. So uh, that's what I spend most of my weekends doing. But it would be nice to have a weekend where I didn't have to do that. Uh, And what I'd like to do is do something fun with the kids and the dogs and go out on a family adventure, uh, exploring somewhere I haven't been before. Sounds good. And finally, if you could invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? 
So I'd like to say something very intelligent uh, at this point because it's one of those questions. <laughs> However, uh, I haven't seen my mum and my sisters for a while and so actually what I'd really like to do is my mum and my two sisters go out for a really nice dinner with them and have a good catch-up. I think that's more important than talking to somebody maybe past or you know, present about something intellectual. I'd like a break from intellectual and just have a catch-up with family. Thanks to Professor Dawn Scott for her time. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to previous podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, where you can also like and subscribe. Just search University of Brighton. That's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week when I'll be speaking to Dr. Alex Zambelli from the School of Architecture and Design. Thanks for listening.